My name is Ilan Haimov, and I'm a partner and the department head of the Profit Participation Group at GHJ. Welcome to our podcast on what an investor needs to know about motion picture financing, which will include a discussion with two distinguished guests and friends, um, including Brian Kozak, EVP and head of business affairs at Creative Wealth Media, as well as Adam Davids, is an SVP, legal and business affairs at Braun Studios. In our podcast, we hope to share an overview of how films are brought to life with within the industry from a financing standpoint. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Elon. Nice to meet everybody. Appreciate the opportunity to discuss what Adam and I love, which is talking about deals and deal making and financing about motion pictures. That's great. I love that energy. All right. So let's actually start with you. Brian, what is your role and how does it relate to the life cycle of the motion picture financing? Thanks, Elon. Appreciate, again, the opportunity uh, to be here. Uh, I'm what you call a deal guy. I do transactions in terms of raising capital and um, involved with Adam in certain projects we've done together and my capacity as legal counsel representing, I'd say, the money and Adam representing the studio. So you'll get a difference of perspective here and also a common perspective where we work together. And yes, we work together well, there's no animosity, we're always professional, all the normal stuff, uh, as when you are working with uh, other counsel and all things, but it's nice to have a more longer relationship where you know one another. In terms of creative wealth, why not kind of like, well, who is creative wealth? Let me start off there, then kind of get into my role. We're in the, um, the business of structuring, financing, administering, and managing a range of media projects with major studios or independently produced films, including Slate's. And we're a fund administrator for a number of investment vehicles, like over 80 feature films with, again, major Hollywood studios, while having provided production financing in about, I guess, you know, over three quarters of a billion dollars. And so now that we know kind of what we do, you know, I think it's good to, in terms of looking at the life cycle of a motion picture and, and financing. And so, Elon, if we look at it, I, I kind of made my own kind of four building blocks of what this would be. So others may have different views, but as a money guy, kind of let me start off with the, the first part, which is aggregating the capital. Uh, if you're forming an investment vehicle or getting a group of investors together, they'll probably all be plugged into some sort of investment vehicle because it's more efficient and there's other reasons. But that's kind of phase one of the life cycle. The second part is actually doing the deal. So once you have a motion picture identified or a group of slates, you'd actually get into the bowels of the uh, actual debt or equity financing. And that's where Adam and I come together at that point. And then the third part would be the spending of the money. Now that you have your money, you can go out there and you can do all the things uh, that you want to do for your film, but obviously with the caveat in accordance with the approved budget. Um, and that's also negotiated at the time that uh, the financing is done with a particular studio. And then the last part is the monitoring phase. All aspects of the, the motion picture could be pre-production, production, post-production. And then finally, it could be either theatrical release or sale licensing to a streamer. And most importantly, all about the moolah, the money. The waterfall, as you know very well about uh, that you've looked at enough of them in your career and in your business, in terms of hopefully there is a waterfall, there was success at the end, the water is trickling down and hitting you as the financiers and everybody is wealthy and wet. So hopefully that gets you there in terms of the cycle of the motion picture financing business. And my role as a corporate securities attorney, attorney involves the first part, 
the structuring of the aggregate capital raising vehicle, the second part, the actual financing debt or equity of a motion picture, and the fourth part, the monitoring. I love that visual of the, the water, not just trickling, but pouring down. Maybe that's, uh, you that's know, like right we got the bathing suit on. There's getting so much money <laughs> at the investor part. That's the goal. And then you have money for the next one. There you go. I love that. All right. So, uh, Adam, what about your role and how does that relate to, again, as, as we just discussed with Brian, to the life cycle of the motion picture financing? Thank you, Brian, for, for your color and Elon. And it's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Uh, my, my role as an attorney at Braun, Braun, Braun Studios is a feature television and animation production company for both scripted and unscripted. So we do a bit of everything as well as sourcing projects that we want to work with, uh, where we may also provide a financial uh, component as well as producing our own or co-producing. So in that in that respect, my, my role is to arrange or oversee or negotiate all the agreements that go into either receiving funds or getting funds back to investors and financiers. I, and then in turn, I stay with the projects through their distribution, delivery, and, and the ongoing monitoring and maintenance of the projects to ensure that downstream revenues continue to flow back in. And Adam, I just wanted to clarify one thing is that there's no exclusivity. You work with different studios and different distributors in Absolutely. North America and around the world. I would Correct. Correct. Okay. Great. No, because it, it's a great perspective to see all of the, the ecosystem, if that's the right word. Yes. Yeah, all right. Great. Thank you for that overview from, from both of you. So we're, we're going to go a little deeper now in the water, right, as we, we talked before. <laughs> and so what I what I thought we want to do, and I think we've heard from you already about some of the roles and responsibilities that you have uh, within the organization, but just in general, what key aspects your company, your organization plays in the financing of motion pictures, you know, whether that's, and I think you mentioned a pooling of the investments together, working on finding the right investment, as well as monitoring the, that investment going, you know, going forward. Thanks, Elon. From a, a capital aggregating perspective, creative wealth, again, as we mentioned earlier, like structures the investments in debt, you know, or equity financing of film, episodic television, or digital animation projects. There, there's a team, you know, no person is an island doing all this by themselves, but you're working with like-minded, sophisticated individuals, all pooling your talents and um, looking for the, you know, perfect execution to put this all together. Um, and when I say structuring, people say, well, what does that mean? Well, it involves tax issues. It can involve the, the type of vehicle you use. It could be limited partnership, could be a corporation, could be an LLC. All these things are being done to maximize the uh, tax efficiencies and providing uh, a vehicle where you can aggregate all your investors. So if you look at it um, from the receiver of funds, uh, it could be the studio, um, you know, they don't want to deal with a hundred or a thousand investors. And, and typically, you know, for the level of financing I'm talking about today is, let's say the, the more larger type of um, finance films, like 10, $20 million and up. Um, it's not like a, um, a crowdfunded uh, film or an indie film that have lower budgets and may get small amounts of money over many, many investors. And so when you get into structuring these types of transactions, it's like any other deal. And so when you're talking private equity, I mean, we could be raising a, a private equity fund to invest in uh, a bunch of small businesses or different things like that. The difference is that the strategy is different. It's all about the film, the motion picture could be a slate and, you know, you're dealing with, you know, different vocabulary, you, you know, looking for like how the returns work. 
But this and, and other investments are alternative investments. Um, this is a specific asset class in terms of film financing. And this is something that people would look at as part of their portfolio. So we, we kind of are the manufacturers, if you will, of these types of entities, and then are looking to put this together and aggregating investments from institutions like pension funds, family offices, or you know very high net worth individuals in single investments or slate loan syndicates, or like a private equity fund. What's interesting, uh, Neil, is when you do a slate for um, your, your listeners, think of like a venture capital fund. Wouldn't it be great to have a number of studios, one or more, but more so, let's say six, seven, eight different investments in different films, gives you diversification, et cetera. To me, this is a bona fide asset class. There's wonderful opportunities. And again, it's something um, that investors should possibly be looking at as part of their portfolio. But again, certain these, these certain types of vehicles are not built for retail investors because they, they do uh, require a large amount of, of capital. Um, and usually, you know, there is a co-financing where the studio is on the hook or your partner in terms of financing uh, these types of films or projects. So they have, quote, skin in the game. So, you know, we've worked with various studios, including Warner Brothers, Sony, MGM, Lionsgate. And uh, obviously, we have uh, done uh, a lot of projects with uh, Broad Studios and my good friend, Adam. You know, Adam and I have worked together in the debt and equity components of these vehicles that have been established. And, uh, you know, typically like Braun would set up what we call like an insulator, single entity affiliated entity of Braun, and that would have the IP and the film and that's what gets financed and off you go. So it's kind of, uh, you know, aspects of what the organization does, how Adam and I work together as the financier. Um, Adam from the studio end and try to put together, as I say, like a deal. So in that sense, Adam and I are, are deal guys, if you will, or transaction attorneys and trying to get to that point. Um, Adam goes even deeper, which he'll get into is that once they have the money, he's involved in all the cool, exciting stuff, which sometimes people think I do, which I do not, is he then gets in the wonderful world of negotiating agreements with directors and producers and talent and all these other things. Uh, that's at the operational side. So the money guys don't deal with that. They trust that uh, a studio such as Braun and Capable Hands of Adam are are dealing and uh, capable, capably executing all those agreements. Thank you, Brian. I mean, let's get into that exciting part. Um, not to say that yours is not uh, exciting. It's uh, certainly both. Uh, I, I hate to disabuse you of the notion. Of, <laughs> I actually, I don't deal with the talent side of things as handled by people more capable than me in that respect. So I, we, Brian, like Creative World has a, has a team of people and we, we, we work on what we're strong at, strongest at. Uh, I deal with the at the development phase. It's mostly about for me. It's mostly about the structuring of the financing, and certainly that involves working with investors and creative wealth and others who provide financing in the form of debt and equity. There's also tax credits which need to be financed. There may or may not be pre-sales, and that depends on the sales strategy of the picture. So right from the outset, the sales team is involved in uh, sorting out a, a sales strategy for what it may be. So in many of our TV series where we have them going into second and third seasons, we have broadcasters lined up who already have payment obligations. And those can be present or future, but they can be easily financed. We may enter into pre-sales with foreign distributors, or we may plan the strategy maybe for uh, a global sale to a worldwide distributor at a later date. That sales strategy then drives your finance plan, which would have the financing of those pre-sales or not, the broadcast agreements or, or not, 
um, and the tax credit strategies based on the jurisdictions. Um, there may also be a portion that is unfunded by those sources of collateral. That would be your gap financing. And then there may be some equity financing in as well. And then there's like the odd projects that have unique properties to them, which may or may not have music deals. There might be something that is heavily music focused that might have a strong soundtrack arrangement. Uh, there might be product placement opportunities. And while those aren't formally baked into a part of the financing as locked, unless maybe it is a music deal or something like that, they form a part of your general understanding of how the film will be paid for. So all that's done during the course of development right up into pre-production. As those financial terms sort of sort themselves out, then all of the interested financing parties or secured parties start their discussions among each other. Uh, and this would include a, a bond, a completion bond, who guarantees completion and delivery of the picture or series to a sales agent or distributor or broadcaster. This would include the financiers. It may or may not include equity. It would include the sales agent. And everybody has to come to terms with what is being delivered, what is being accepted for delivery, by what date, whose collateral is in a priority order over who, who else's. And all of those discussions and different interests play out typically during the course of pre-production. Uh, all that's before cameras start rolling. Then hopefully that settles before cameras start rolling. Not always, but one hopes. And then the cameras start rolling and everything that goes on during the course of production is handled by a team of people abroad. At that point, the people overseeing responsibility expands exponentially. And there's a lot of very capable people handling everything that goes on on the ground. Once we go into post-production, at that point, uh, if the sales strategy is to commence sales during post-production, leading up to market or you know, depending on a market, the process of sales and putting together a reel to sell, that really gets underway. And then you're supporting the sales team in driving their strategy for the distribution and exploitation of that film. And then we negotiate with distributors, uh, work out delivery schedules, ensure delivery, and uh, let the bond off the hook and get the investors repaid. Well, that's good. Yeah. And I know Brian will appreciate that, but I was going to say, going back, uh, you mentioned distributors. Are those typically, could be a large studio, it could be a smaller studio, there could be perhaps a couple of different studios. Well, yeah, so the sales strategy is going to drive who you look for in, in terms of the distribution of the film. So it could be multiple into, uh, foreign distributors throughout the world and one larger domestic distributor. It could be one domestic distributor for a worldwide deal with an intended theatrical release. It could also be a streamer uh, without the intent of a theatrical release, though maybe with a small New York, LA release if, you're, if it's an awards play. So, and for television, uh, obviously it's gonna be a, a broadcaster or streamer uh, without the attempt to go theatrical. And again, that may be a worldwide strategy or it may be a, a local market strategy. Some of that will also be driven. We, we've done derivative productions from an original in a foreign language. And so there may be deals tying up the, the rights in that territory where it was originally released. You have to deal with your chain of title to ensure that you've got all your territories available to you at that point. That's really helpful. Thank you. That's great. So just shifting gears now back to you, Brian, 
maybe talk a little bit more about the paperwork that's involved in the process of negotiation and structuring the deal, the financing deal, or perhaps the pooling vehicle you mentioned before, pulling the investors together. What is entailed? And just, and obviously we don't, with the limited time that we have, like what kinds of things are important to keep in mind in terms of documents? Thanks, Elon. It's kind of like, you know, what are the transaction documents? And as, as you said, uh, you can't get into all the, the details and they would probably form the basis of separate podcasts of the ins and outs of some of these exciting agreements that are negotiated by lawyers that only they read, so to speak. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to start off with when you create a fund and putting the, the deal together, think of it as a, again, I'm looking at it as a private equity fund and investment vehicle. It's, t- it's tried to test it and true in the sense that you know, whether it's films or whether it's, um, you know, the underlying assets are small businesses or biotech companies, the lawyers kind of go through the same paperwork, but the due diligence varies and the strategy varies uh, and things like that. So I just wanted to, to share with the group that there is a lot of commonality here and it's not all specifically tailored and catered to this area, this alternative financing area involving motion picture financing. The final form of the entity, we keep saying entity because it it could be many things. It depends on, often I say, you know, what did the tax master say of how we should structure the transaction? Because a lot of time there could be cross-border international tax treaties, et cetera, that have to be recognized in terms of the different vehicles. And let me kind of disabuse the audiences. It's not just like if you look at a a picture, you know, investor, and then underneath it is the investment. Uh, There's often many intermediate blocker corporations and things like that, that go all into making it tax efficient or otherwise, depending on where the investors are located. So in terms of looking at um, the key agreements, uh, as you start off, I thought a key concept would be the, you know, you're either uh, financing a particular project or motion picture, or it could be a blind pool, or if you do a slate, it could be, you know, a, a few of the titles and others you don't, but it would follow certain investment parameters. So for example, you may not put more than 15% of the available funds uh, in any single motion picture at the time of the investment. So those are kind of things that would go into the strategy and you'd work together uh, with whoever's putting the slate together and the studios. So let's assume in terms of the key documents that you know the co-financing and distribution agreement has been entered into. Um, you know, that would be, do you have a deal before we do the vehicle that gets money into the actual deal, whatever that is, is what have you lined up with the studio? So let's say there's a number of pictures, the, all the, the rights and obligations are all set out in a co-financing and distribution agreement. Elon, I know you have looked at many of them. You're probably more of an expert at these agreements in your firm than myself and Adam combined. And you are looking at the waterfalls and doing audits and all those other things. And those rights are all in this agreement. So let's assume that that's all done. You know, you're you know, once satisfied with the, the green light business case uh, to proceed, sales estimates and all these other things. So in terms of the transaction side, like all things, you'd probably start off with, you know, one, a confidentiality agreement or NDA. So, you know, obviously the studio wants to make sure that when you're doing due diligence, all their information is proprietary and confidential. And then you agree what will be made available. And typically if you do make it available, it's going into a data room. And then the investors, if their teams come in and look at things, um, they'd be subject to a confidentiality or NDA agreement. Um, again, we've assumed that the, the main co-financing agreement is there and all those details um, are set out. Um, you immediately, you know, we are putting together a term sheet. 
So what I want to be clear is that the terms that are negotiated with the studio are specific to that motion picture, but the deal with the investors are dealing with uh, a number of things in what the term sheet sets out, like the offering size, like you raising a hundred million, 50 million, 20 million in terms of that entity, minimum commitment amount. Um, that's interesting in that a lot of people need to understand there's a minimum subscription amount versus commitment in terms of commitment is look, uh, I'm in for, let's say 20 million, but you don't have to put 20 million on the barrel head. As soon as you sign your subscription agreement, the studio may draw down those funds if, and when needed, depending on where, where the, the project is in the cycle and when they need funds, you know, you'd set out the investment objective of the fund, the strategy information about the key actors. We call it like a fund complex could be the general partner. If it's a partnership um, manager, the administrator, sets out the drawdown mechanics, like how investors may be called upon for money. And then it gets into the investment period. So investors want to know, okay, so how long are you going to have my money? It could be, let's say it's three or four years that when we get the money, we may reinvest it. And then there's a liquidation part where at that point, there's no new investments. They're just kind of, uh, you know, letting them, um, ex- you know, l- letting them finalize or whatever money is to be had comes back and uh, could deal with, um, you know, debt limits, reports to investors, what type of reports, and then obviously fees. There's the management fees, it could be carried interest, organizational costs. All those things are kind of set out in a high level term sheet. Best to stop with, start with that because once that is done, then efficiently you then put that into the main long form documents, if you will. So when you, when you work with investors, they need an offering document. In the world of, of where, where I work in it, this is an investment. These are securities. So you're subject to securities laws. Just because it is a film doesn't mean it's not a security. Uh, won't get into what is a security, but capital raising is made on this basis to make money. So you have to summarize, and typically you'd have, let's say, a private placement memorandum, and that is a liability document. So the lawyers are all fussing on every word because um, you know you can't have a misrepresentation. Or an investor may have a right to sue for damages or rescission rights to get their money back. So that's why there's a lot of pouring over that document. It would summarize, let's say, key aspects of the. Uh, let's say a partnership agreement, if it's a partnership or operating agreement is LLC. Um, but most importantly, it also sets out the risk factors that, you know, you could lose your money. It's a high risk investment. All those things are important. And those are normal in any type of transaction that you do or offering. So it's commonly called the PPM, private placement memo, SIM, confidential information memorandum. You know, it's disguised in different names, but it's the same thing. It's an offering document. And then sometimes, uh, you know, if you're you know, speaking to investors, you do a PowerPoint presentation. Again, it would be an abbreviated summary of the PPM and putting in highlights so people are following the story, like who's the management team, what's your strategy, things like that, what's your target return. So at the end, it's all wrapped up in an agreement uh, that's put together in, in what's called the subscription package or booklet, where an investor would then sign what their commitment is. And, you know, they have to make a number of representations and warranties and things like that. Part of the, 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 the main documents, obviously, we call them constating documents in law. Let's just call them simply like the main documents. So, you know, for a company, people are familiar with the articles of incorporation, the bylaws, those are what are called constating documents, declaration of trust for a trust. So you want to have all those in the data room and see that they're all done and, and all the disclosure complies with what's said in these offering documents. And then, you know, when you, when you set up, let's say a limited partnership and you take in limited partners, there's typically a general partner, but then, then typically the general partner may, you know, assign its, its duties and functions to an investment manager. So then you have an investment management agreement. 
They may also do the administration, but sometimes there's a separate administrator and either the fund or the or the investment manager would then contract with the administrator to provide various administrative services. With investors, there could also be side letters. So you have the main parameters for investors, but if investors invest a large amount of money, they may want certain terms. And those terms could be financial or non-financial, but usually it involves uh, what I call the seat at the table. And so there is often in uh, such structures, they set up an, an LPAC or a limited partner advisory committee, and they'd want to see at the table where certain information would be brought to the committee. You know, obviously they would make recommendations. Um, they want to know what's happening. They're not necessarily binding because if you have a general partner, they have fiduciary duties. Like you can't have some other committee take away their powers under law. But again, it's very important that the large uh, limited partners would want to see at the table to be involved in certain matters in terms of making recommendation, inform information flow, et cetera, because it's their money and uh, things like that. So all this is in a data room where investors have access to, and really that's kind of very high level, Elon, in terms of a drive-by. So listeners have a sense of what are the main documents and uh, what is done at the fund formation or financing stage. I was just going to say, you know, I, I know your background is in this area, in the area of investment, um, and it does require a unique specialty from a legal perspective and making sure you have all the records in place, making sure there's proper disclosure. All of that is wonderful and helpful, even if it's still at a high level. So thank you, Brian. If, if I can switch to uh, the other side again, on the, on the studio side for you, Adam, similar question, you know, as you, as you begin to negotiate the terms what are those documents that you're working with? Uh, what are the key documents? Sure. So it, it's you know, usually around this point, a creative or any entrepreneurial activity is largely driven by a great you know, sense of optimism. And it is at this point that they let the pessimists in. So this is where there's, there's an alphabet soup of documents where various interested parties with different interests begin negotiating amongst themselves for what happens when everything goes wrong. And those documents, uh, the, the alphabet soup consists of a loan and security agreement. In the, case of, in the case of debt financing, there's a loan and security agreement, the LSA. Those loans are secured by collateral. Generally speaking, it is general collateral, which is why there's a special purpose vehicle. So there's an SPV and a GSA. The general security agreement also has some specific covenants in it about the rights in that property. We have a copyright mortgage. And you can think of a copyright mortgage as, uh, as somewhat equivalent to a real estate mortgage or a real property mortgage. Uh, it is registered with the US Copyright Office or wherever the copyrights are held. That office generally throughout the world will also recognize uh, a lien on that copyright. There's then, then there's a number of documents that are as between the secured parties or as between investors and the sales agent. And there's an intercreditor where all of the uh, secured parties work out what their priority is to what collateral. If there's a ta separate tax credit financier, that tax credit financier would have priority collateral over the tax credits versus the other financiers, by way of example. If there's somebody financing the pre-sales, uh, they will have priority collateral over the pre-sales and the tax credit financier will be subordinate to them in that collateral. 
So that that pecking order is put into the intercreditor agreement, as well as um, how one allocates underspend. So, for example, if a project comes in under budget by, say, a million dollars, you know, does that million dollars get divided up pro rata? And it's at this point that the tax credit financier says no, because you probably haven't spent some of the money on money that I was expecting to come in from the qualified expenditures in that jurisdiction. So I want more of the underspend. And that's where these discussions start to take place in the intercreditor. There's also then covenants, uh, a separate agreement, a sales agent interparty agreement. So now we have an ICA, now this is the IPA with the sales agent where the financiers will want additional controls over the sales agent, probably an ability to terminate the sales agent in the event that they haven't recovered by some date in the future, usually based on the sales strategy, whether that be a market sale or uh, some other some other date set set out there. So these are the agreements that are negotiated as between the interested parties. There may also be equity agreements. All of the security agreements are then uh, formalized and registered. Securities are registered in uh, the respective jurisdictions, um, and and then the uh, the waterfall is memorialized at least. Braun tends to, in most cases, use a collection account manager. Um, and these are third-party paymasters, um, typically located in um, countries that have uh, pre preferable tax treatments for royalty incomes, Hungary or the Netherlands. Uh, and, and so we enter into a collection account management agreement that memorializes the waterfall as between all of the all of the financial investors, uh, as well as involves things like the guilds. Um, and there's a certain benefit to being a party to a camera if you have guild obligations, uh, because the guild won't require a bond for for their residual payments, uh, which reduces the production expenditures by hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases. Uh, so it's a it's a material component to have a camera in place. Um, other other material documents obviously are like 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 the investors required basic con stating documents. Those are required, and and then and then you have all your insurances and the bond documents as well. So I think Adam, if I can jump in, and uh, you talked about the camera. That's so important because um, these are investments. People want to make money. So everybody has different agreements that are getting percentages or funds. So when you think about it uh, for your listeners, like, well, who's organizing that and making sure everyone gets paid and what they're entitled to. So like, do, do you guys handle it? Does the studio and there's an independent company and, and Adam, perhaps you can expand a bit about this is they kind of bring everybody together and they're that third party uh, independent that looks at what the deals are. And then they make sure everybody gets the money and if there's water at the end of the waterfall, the finances will get it, or if not, but it provides that safety and comfort for everybody involved that they all get paid. Adam, I know you have extensive experience in this. Maybe you can just share a few other tidbits about that, because that's a key part in terms of the flow of funds. Sure. Uh, there, there, there are predominantly two companies. There's a, there are some other players in this marketplace, but there are predominantly two companies that are widely respected in the industry. They, this is Vintage and Freeway. They are third-party paymasters 
who work with the producers to uh, put together all of the parties to the camera and the beneficiaries. And not every beneficiary is necessarily a party, uh, but the guilds will always be parties to the extent that it's a guild production. And large financiers and maybe even equity will also be parties. Talent participations tend to be beneficiaries and they get, receive a different reporting. But what the camera does is it consolidates all of the information that parties are entitled to, and that includes all distribution agreements. It characterizes the disbursement of funds. So it could be distribution income from an exploitation in a particular territory, or it could be music publishing royalty, or it could be a music license or a soundtrack license or some other type of income. They also will take tax credit excess. So again, going back to the intercreditor agreement, once the tax credit comes in, if there is more than enough to pay off the tax credit lender, that excess will flow through the camera. You want that excess to skip over your sales agent and skip over the guilds because there are certain incomes to which they are not entitled. So you spell out who's entitled to what income and you have to think of all your income streams when putting it together. Freeway and Vintage are both very capable and helpful in this, but it also helps to have a, a competent producer thinking about the different income streams and know who gets what, when, and to structure the waterfall so that the appropriate people uh, get the money when it comes in. Great. That's really helpful. And thanks for highlighting that, Brian. That's very, very important uh, from an in independence perspective and obviously a comfort that the waterfall will go where it needs to go. All right, so we are now uh, in our final stage of our podcast, which which really puts it all together. Again, for those who are who are, who are listening, or are looking to get more involved, or are looking to look for those best practices, what key recommendations do you both have to either investors or producers, especially right now in this environment that we're in? And I'm thinking about interest going up. Uh, there's some, obviously, there's just a lot of disruption in our industry. Anything that you can share in terms of recommendations and ideas or best practices. And maybe I'll tell you what, let's do this. Why don't we just, Adam, why don't you start and then we'll have Brian finish. Sure. Uh, just sort of building on that, you know, like who gets what in the waterfall. In, in the current environment, it's an exciting environment. Maybe Brian can speak to this, but traditionally motion pictures and entertainment has been seen as counter-cyclical for an investment, uh, although the interest rates uh, create their own issues. Um, but now with the development of NFTs and all the, the Web 3.0 and ga the gamification of things, particularly with respect to our animation and digital properties, uh, what's, what I find important is looking at distribution agreements and seeing what rights you, you can withhold. So it's what's not given at this point, because I, I, it's difficult to predict the future and what's going to result in a, a, a pro profitable revenue stream for you in the future from uh, certain exploitation rights. But you can certainly at this point still try to keep them out or at least price them in in some measure uh, if giving them up. And so th that's sort of where you want to hold, you want to try to withhold rights to NFTs, to games, to mu music publishing, e educational distribution. If you've got an educational property or like a documentary or even a book, a property based on a book that is in national curricula. So these are the types of things that you can look for now as a way of sort of trying to play out in a dynamic and shifting time is to just not give everything away is sort of the short answer there. Thank you. So, so Elon, uh, 
very good uh, questions to kind of wrap things up. Uh, definitely. I'm like, let's look at things from an investor perspective. That's usually my perspective is how do they might make money? What are the opportunities in the space? And let me just kind of start off with, it is exciting times, just so much change, exciting things. Um, change is not necessarily bad. It's opportunistic. Uh, even though that we have interest rates rising and we're suffering from inflation and things like that, we have to look at what are the opportunities. And so what happened is we're all at home and we don't know what to do. So we all watch Netflix and all of a sudden Netflix has, has expanded to all sorts of other streamers out there. And next thing, all of us are watching multiple streams. We may have Disney we have Netflix, we may have Hulu, Crave. Uh, uh, please forgive me if I missed uh, some of the big ones you know, prime with Amazon and we're, we are looking for content and you, you found that the studios were trying to deal with, you know, do we go theatrical? Like, do we get bums in seats? And if people are afraid to go to the theaters, what will they do? And do we just sell it to a streamer? And it was very interesting times because um, let's call it disruptive because the status quo changed and it was disruptive in the sense, like everyone's trying to make money and keep the industry afloat. And at the end of the day, there is this demand for good content and I'm probably like many listeners, including both of you, you probably have multiple subscriptions to, to different streamers. And, uh, you know, um, you know, I, I'm watching uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi on Disney and I may go to Prime and watch Yellowstone and things like that. And I love it. And that means that there is demand. And where there is demand for a product, you need money to manufacture the product. And so my, my recommendation for investors, for family offices, institutionals, is give a look at major motion picture financing, single pictures um, or slates. Uh, these vehicles allow uh, you to invest or, or co-invest along with the studios where they have skin in the game. And it's a very interesting asset class that is growing because the demand there, in fact, even this year, there's recent reports or more reporting of private equity getting more involved in the Hollywood space, et cetera. So from that perspective, I'm saying it's exciting uh, for investors to look at these opportunities and see how you can make money, diversify your portfolio. For producers or studios, or let's say the creators of the content, uh, my final thoughts are start with the end in mind. Now, I know many people are creative and they want to tell a story. The story has to be told, things like that. But if I may, private equity and institutional investors are agnostic. They're looking for a return on their investment. That's it. All the other things, if they work out, they're very happy. There may be certain investors that have an agenda or want to do a passion play or like the creative aspect of it, things like that. Could be a documentary where you know they like to break even, but um, they know that they're doing it for other reasons, and that's fine. You know, private equity is looking for you know with the type of risk double digit returns, and it, obviously it has a risk reward matrix investing in any asset class, including motion pictures. So producers or studios may believe a story needs to be told or interested in a certain type of genre. However, again, money's agnostic and you need to think of the financial returns and that is how you should present it. So, you know, to one side of the equation for the creatives and the story to be told is very important. The other side has to do with the money in order to fund all this. And, you know, you, you want to make sure that you, the end in mind is a financial return because you want that waterfall to work. You want them to get wet with lots of money. So they do another film and you're quote successful and the industry moves on. It's an exciting time. You know, we're here with, you know, I, I mentioned many streamers, um, you know, um, Netflix had a little hiccup, but I mean, to me, that's all part of the growing pains. So looking at the models, there's multiple streamers. There's a huge demand for content. 
you know, whatever, like, like Adam said, wherever the economics uh, or so what's happening in the economy, things like that, people have always found solace going, seeing a flick with a family entertainment, and it's not going away. And I'm probably like you guys is I, I just as much like going to a theater uh, with my family or friends or even by myself uh, or watching something at home because I can't get out uh, with family and friends or otherwise through a streamer service or otherwise. And the opportunity is that's the manufacturer of the film that needs to be sold. And that's how the whole ecosystem hangs together. I'll leave you with web 3.0, hearing all these words, meta universe, NFTs, what's going on here. Let me just say the creatives are getting more creative and we are uh, adapting and we are twisting and turning to figure out how do you make money? Because through web 3.0, it's basically empowering creators and giving them more revenue and possibly disintermediating, but giving consumers more choice, non-fungible tokens or NFTs. People are looking at that, you know, simply put, imagine that you can then on a blockchain, get a right to a certain NFT. It could be a character in a digital animation. It could be, um, think of all the assets, the talent, the pictures, all the, the media and the intellectual property that somehow can be exploited and monetized. And all of a sudden, Elon, people like you are saying, how do we do an audit on this? What do we do? This is exciting because there's more money coming in and more money means hopefully an increase in the profitability of that particular um, uh, uh, film or project. And to me, that's why it's exciting. And that's kind of my message for producers is start looking at these people that are into blockchain and crypto and NFTs. They are worth the conversation. As you see Hollywood, they're leading, they're, there's top shots, they're, they're, that is a type of NFT. There's other things that are happening in the space. And I can tell you that I am uh, listening to my kids that may be more experts on this, doing my own research and reading. And it's an exciting time. I really love the word. I think you've used the word exciting several times, which I actually feel the same. And I know Adam does as well. This is, we are in this business because we 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 love what we do and we love the industry we're in, but it is changing. And, and I love your point that change is an opportunity, change is exciting. So I'd love to end on that note. I uh, really, I actually learned quite a bit from the two of you um, on this podcast and I hope everybody else uh, was enriched and learned something today. But more importantly, I wanted to thank you both for the time that you've taken from your schedule, your busy schedule to, to join this podcast. And I thank everybody for the listening. Thank you. Thank you, Milan. Thank you to all the thank listeners you. and go out and watch a good movie. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you.